2: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Vann of California State University, Sacramento. Today, my guest is Jeffrey White, and we're going to talk about the birth of psychological war, propaganda, espionage, and military violence from World War II to the Vietnam War, out with Oxford University Press in 2023 and available through open access. Dr. White earned his PhD with the Department of Geography at the University of British Columbia, and before that, earned his M.A. with the School of Communications at Simon Fraser University, also in beautiful British Columbia. He's currently a lecturer in International Relations at the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at Lancaster University in the U.K. Dr. Jeffrey White. Uh, Jeff, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thanks, mate. I uh, really appreciate it. So um, before we get into the book, uh, The Birth of Psychological War, Propaganda, Espionage and Military Violence from World War II to the Vietnam War, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you came to be the scholar that you are, and what drew you to the the topic of psychological warfare?
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've had a bit of a, a circuitous route to where I am now. Um, I started um, in in my undergrad studying. Uh, philosophy, um, mostly continental philosophy at a sort of small liberal arts school um, in Halifax, Nova Scotia, sort of um, near to where I grew up. Um, It was a program really kind of designed around um, history of ideas um, and sort of contemporary, um, continental philosophy. And from there, I moved to the, the other coast of Canada to Vancouver, and I did a master's degree in communication studies, uh, which in Canada is a sort of interesting tradition. There's this, um, critical school of communication studies in Canada that combines cultural studies and political economy. Um, and that was a really, really great place to to study and shaped a lot of my, my thinking about, um, looking at, um, the politics of communication. And then I moved from my PhD to the other side of the city. Um, I started a PhD program in the geography department uh, at the University of British Columbia. Uh, I studied with Derek Gregory there, who is doing a lot of writing on the global war on terror, uh, on the history of aerial bombardment. Um, and that's where I sort of learned to take a more geographical approach. Um, and it was really great environment. There was a lot of students and faculty that are working um, in critical military studies. So it was just a a really terrific environment. And on the question of of psychological war, I mean, so for me as a young person, um, you know, the sort of defining political event of that time of my life was the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and this sort of procession of um, I mean tragedies and 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 pharsis I guess um, really made me uh, want to engage more in the politics of uh, of war and and, and those wars. Um, and I think it's easy to forget now because a lot of this, sort of discourse has fallen away but there was so much enthusiasm at the time for this cultural turn um in war towards counterinsurgency this idea of um winning hearts and minds uh, abroad and that really captured my imagination i think this idea that there was a um a type of knowledge or technique that could be used to um m- manipulate people abroad and and sort of uh you know uh uh make friends and influence people. Right. And, and, and it's, and the the idea is psychological war. It's such a a alluring kind of idea, right? It sounds kind of sinister, but a bit, um, you know, but a bit intriguing as well. So I set out um, in my studies, I think perhaps naively, in in fact, I'm sure naively, um, uh, to begin with trying to think about, um, well, how can I uncover or expose what, you know, what, what we're doing, to, as I say, try to control public opinion, to manipulate people. Um, And of course, you didn't have to scratch the surface very far to realize that, well, we weren't winning a whole lot of hearts and minds. So my interest quickly changed from this question of, well, how are we controlling people's minds in in foreign countries, um, to, well, how did we ever come to believe that this is something that we could do in the first place? So the project took sort of an historical turn there, and I became interested in, or I mean, I guess I sort of end up ended up trying to write this political history of the idea of psychological war, um, and, and the idea of it as a as a concept in international politics. So it became sort of a a, a genealogy, I guess, of psychological war in that in that sort of Foucauldian sense. Yeah, yeah, no,
2: absolutely. That I think that genealogy uh, metaphor works uh, works well for it. And you, um, so you you start the book with uh, the great news, uh, somewhat uh, tongue in cheek, that uh, <laughs> yeah. psychological warfare is back, kids. Um, you know, what, what, so what what is the conventional or official definition of psychological warfare or psyops, and and when was the first the term first coined, and by whom? And you note that there is some debate within the the field on you know. Is this an ancient uh, mm-hmm. uh technique or is this something that's newer you argue that there's a there's a much newer birth point
1: mm-hmm yeah, so I think this is this is really what um a lot of the book ends up um trying to answer right is where does this concept of psychological warfare um come from um and there's no real one agreed upon definition, but I can maybe give you sort of a a, a composite definition um the sort of conventional um, uh, composite definition, which would be um, any sort of attempt to achieve political goals by influencing the thoughts, beliefs, or feelings of various target audiences or groups. Now that's an incredibly abstract um, definition. Um, I can refine that down a little bit because I think there's often confusion about exactly what we're talking about. So one of the things that we think about when we think about psychological war is tactical psywar war or battlefield psychological war. These are the things like dropping leaflets on enemy soldiers or directing loudspeakers towards them, radio broadcasts. These are things like trying to reach, reach enemy soldiers with uh, defection appeals or um things like safe conduct passes right like that look like a passport that say if you carry this to the to the other side you have you'll have safe safe conduct to to surrender um and those are often directed towards again enemy enemy soldiers and then there's the the idea of strategic psi war which is um the audiences then get a bit more um diverse so these can be civilians in enemy countries civilians in neutral countries um political leaders um, so, so this is where it, it becomes a bit more uh, amorphous, and and things like, um, you know, f- entertainment films, newspapers, books; these can all be considered under the rubric of strategic psychological war. But so, I mean, but more often than not, the 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 definition of psychological warfare is often very, again, as I say, abstract and very flexible. One of the first um, writers on psychological war, one of the first. Sort of post-war collections that attempted to codify um a theory or a definition of psychological war it actually came out of Johns Hopkins University. Um, they had what was called the Operations Research Office, which had been contracted with the US Army um in throughout the 1950s, and they put out a sort of trilogy of books that were trying to define psychological war. And, and the first one, I believe, was written by uh, Wilbur Schramm, who is a one of these foundational um, scholars in early communication studies, so like orthodox communication studies, things like public opinion polling and trying to work out the science of, of public opinion. And he gives this very, by his own admission, circular definition of psychological war, saying, well, psychological war is what psychological warriors do. Um, and, and he sort of admits that that's not going to satisfy a lot of people. Um, but there's, there's something ab- about that. Um, there's flexibility in that circularity, and there's something about, I think, people who practice psychological war not wanting to be, be pinned down with too specific uh, a definition. And the favorite one line that I came up with, which which was a, from a subsequent volume in that series, um, is the editor notes that, and uh, this is a direct quote, that when most people who write or talk about psychological war, they use the term... Like Humpty Dumpty did in his discussion with Alice, Alice in Wonderland concerning glory. He told her, when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. And so I think that's there's a lot of that um, again, purposeful flexibility um in 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 keeping the idea of psychological war really vague. Um, But but I'll say a bit, I think more than trying to nail down a specific definition of Psywar, I think um, something that's really important is understanding the context in which to emerge. Uh, And that was in the interwar years when the idea of propaganda, propaganda was a bad word, right? Um, So many people felt um, so deeply deceived by the sort of Large-scale propaganda campaigns that uh, occurred in essentially all of the belligerent countries, and there had been this wave in, of, in the in the, in the World War One, the Great in, War. In, in for, yeah. That's right. Yes, yeah. um, and and there was a huge wave of publishing um, in the interwar years that were sort of debunking all of the excesses of the propaganda. So propaganda became a, a, a really bad word. So I think one of the reasons that we see psychological war is it's a claim that um, we're not just doing. Propaganda, or this is something more than propaganda, as vulgar deception. There's something productive. There's something scientifically calibrated about this, um, and so so so. I, I think partially there was an attempt to distance the sort of then contemporary practice of of of, of you know what's now psychological war from the the sort of by then very pejorative um, term uh, propaganda, and so. Right. So so that's the context. And then the other... Um, so when we start to think about the origins, it's often traced back to the immediate post-war era. I already mentioned the series of publications by um, the Johns Hopkins um, Operations Research Office. There's also... Um, like a raft of publications, uh, people like Paul Leinbarger write a book about their experience in the Second World War um, called Psychological War. Daniel Lerner, who eventually becomes one of these MIT modernization theorists, writes a book uh, about um, allied Psywar against Germany. And one of the things, and this is what you referenced in, in the question, they all of these authors sort of try to project psychological warfare back into history as if it has this sort of elemental history um, or this elemental—it's—it's it's part of the, the the natural history of war. They'll say things like, "Well, psychological war is as old as nations, um, or even older, guess, right?" You you you, you yeah. cite authors who say it goes back to the Bible, right? Yeah, Gideon's ruse in the Old Testament is the first is the first uh, um, instances of psychological war. And so, what what I think this idea of trying to date it back obscures is the. Very particular circumstances under which the idea of psychological war enters the American political lexicon, um, basically, essentially, in 1940, and, and and no early sort of comes comes out of nowhere, more or less. So I, I spend a lot of time in the book and in that first chapter, especially, thinking about those specific circumstances.
2: Yeah. So is is that your your revision to this conventional definition that it
1: that it has this? this
2: birth moment in, in 1940 and comes out of these unique circumstances. and
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so this is the, I, I I think for me, this is the thing maybe that I'm most, most proud of in the book. And it's the thing I didn't really expect to find when I started um, doing the research for it, which is that um, there's this whole sort of drama um, to psychological warfare and to, to its origins. It's this, um, real kind of, uh, spy thriller in a way, right? It's, um, it's this sort of, I, 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 it's, it's difficult to, 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 to sum up, but I try to explain it as the, the idea of psychological war is itself a kind of propaganda, or there's a, there's a certain, um, sort of suite of things that, that psychological warfare claims about itself. Um, that I think we can, we can analyze as itself a form of propaganda. So there's this sort of propaganda uh, about propaganda going on. And and one of the things uh, is this claim that it's, um, it's really backed up by this um, sort of range of social scientific expertise. Right. And I think that this is connected. I, I call it at one point in, in, in the book, it's a, uh, a social science fiction i I, I um, thought that
2: was a delightful term. I really enjoyed yeah, that the social yeah. science fiction,
1: yeah, thank you i'm i'm happy I'm happy, yeah, I'm happy that that landed because I think it's really um, yeah, it's an interesting and and this this connects back to that idea that um propaganda is a really bad word at this time. So they're trying to find a way so it's not just um, by by sort of purporting to to ground psychological war in social scientific expertise that can make it seem as if it's something more than just a, a vulgar de- deception right it, instead it's this sort of intricate technical achievement it's about good governance um you know it's about it's about being a, a, a modern governing power um, so again i think connected to this conventional definition is this idea that there's this suite of tools techniques theories practices forms of knowledge especially social scientific knowledge, that can be used to create power over individuals and over populations, and especially in foreign countries. Um, and I think, of, of course, this isn't true, right? Of, of, <laughs> if, if we think about this for a moment, um, we realize, well, what would the world look like if the formulas for controlling public opinion were all kind of worked out, right? Um, th- things would look very different. Um Mind you, this is not to say that propaganda isn't real, that uh, people people aren't influenced, of course. Um, it's just that I think that the, the power of propaganda is, and this is a really simple point that's really intuitive, I think, it's geographically circumscribed, right? And as a propagandist, do you have access to forms of uh, n- networks of social capital? Do you have access to various forms of economic and cultural capital? Can you can you leverage those? Often in one's own country, in the domestic context, that can be true. If you're a a, a magazine publisher who operates uh, socially between say Washington and New York, well, you have access to a credulous um, and sort of trusted readership. And so you, there is a lever of power there. Um, but what happens, of course, in in foreign countries, even countries uh, who you're at war with, uh, you don't have those sort of levers of power, right? Um, so I think one of the claims, this is why I call it sort of a, a social science fiction, is there's an implicit sense in the idea of psychological war that whatever whatever body of knowledge animates its power is something that can sort of overcome the friction of distance. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's true. Um, and I think there's sort of a funny vignette in, uh, that I include among some of the early social scientists who were gathering together to try to figure out what they could do to contribute to the psychological war. And so there was this group called the Society for the Psychological Study of Social Issues. And one of its psychologists, Leonard Dube, um, he, he says, and th- this is a direct quote, I, I really love this. He said, it was felt that the SPSSI could render a public service at a time of crisis nothing was said concerning how war and war propaganda could be analyzed. It was simply and enthusiastically believed that psychologists were capable of doing this. So I love the takeaway there is that like, well, well, we don't know what we can do, but we're certain we have to do it.
2: Yeah, no, I I love that. And, and that term social science fiction, for me rounds it so much in that moment of, um, late 50s early 60s um uh uh the will development of modernization theory which i think is mm-hmm. definitely a fellow traveler here and they're definitely sort of you know i don't know what the the the, the metaphor is sort of um sniffing their own uh, whatever like they're they're, they're, they're they're there's a feedback loop and uh th- there's no there's no qu- uh questioning the very premise of course we can do this what we're doing we're not exactly sure but we'll push this through, and that's such a such an important insight to the United States relationship with the, you know, the
1: Global South, we call it now, but the Third World at that time. And, um, and a lot of this, like yeah. the early psychological worries become modernization theorists, and then yeah. and then back again. I and saw that, some familiar come, names come up again. Yeah, you,
2: you, you know, you note know that a couple of times in the book, and I saw something, I was like, oh, I know that mm-hmm. character. Um, mm-hmm. So, the the book is organized into an introduction, four chapters, and a conclusion. And after talking about uh, switching back to the good old PSYOP in, uh, in um, uh, the introduction, introduction. Chapter, chapter one is a, uh, a new geography of defense. Um, would you walk us through your main points here? And how was this a response to Nazi Germany's moves?
1: Yeah, so I mean, this is where it really becomes like a bit of a a potboiler. I mean, there's there's this sort of um, spy intrigue that that's happening here that I was just kind of floored to discover. And again, I think this is one of the real contributions of the book because I think it's not a story that's really told when the history of psychological war gets told. So, um, and I think here the because it really involves. I mean, I mean, the the argument here and what I try to demonstrate is showing that the the origins of psychological warfare as a concept in the United States is deeply linked to the formation of the early intelligence community there. And again, the context is extremely important. So this is 1940. Um, Britain's on the back back foot, right? Uh, The Dunkirk evacuation has happened. Um, Britain's desperate for the United States to join the war. Um, FDR would really wants to to get the United States involved. Um, His main problem is that American public opinion is, uh, staunchly against intervention, uh, which is not to say that Americans, um, uh, want Germany to win the war. They don't overwhelmingly Americans want Britain to win. They just don't want to get involved in it. Right. And this is the classic, I think the, the dynamics of interventionism versus isolationism is well understood in this, in this era. Um, but it's very important for, um, how psychological war as a concept arrives on the scene. So so one of the things that um, FDR does is he empowers um, William Donovan to create one of the United States' first intelligence agencies. Now, Donovan is a Wall Street lawyer. He's a veteran of the First World War. Um, he's extremely well connected socially, um, and he's and he, he goes on to become this figure who's who's regarded as the sort of grandfather of the CIA, right? Wild Bill Donovan is the is is the nickname, right? Um, and so he, um, FDR makes him the what's called the coordinator of information or he's the 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 coord the office creates the office of the coordinator of information which is sort of a mouthful but that the coi the coordinator of information and this is the predecessor to um what becomes the office of strategic services the oss which then goes on to sort of become the 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 cia so that's the sort of genealogy here and so so donovan immediately starts collaborating with his british counterpart uh, who's a Canadian industrialist named William Stevenson. Um, and there's been books written about him as well. His, his, uh, spy code name is Intrepid, right? This is the, the spy called Intrepid. Um, and William Stevenson is heading a, um, a branch of, uh, British, um, intelligence called the British security coordination, BSC. And it's running, it's, um, program out of Thirty Rockefeller Plaza in New York, so you know that if you've seen the show Thirty Rock or or where um, Saturday Night Live is recorded. Um, and or the Christmas running... tree, the annual Christmas tree. <laughs> that, that we are we right, are recording yeah. in December. <laughs> that's correct. Yeah, and so it's yeah such a storied building, um, and so they're they're operating out of uh, under cover of a, a, a of a passport office, and and so. William Donovan and William Stevenson, the two Williams, um, sort of team up. um, And one of the things that they do is to try to advertise or publicize um, the danger of this new kind of warfare. Um, And this is psychological war, because for them, really, public opinion, American public opinion is the battleground, right? They really want to convince Americans um, to, um, to intervene and to join the war. And one of the ways that they do this is try to say, well, listen, you might want to stay out of the war, you may want to be an isolationist, but you can't do that because the psychological war is already here, we're we're already under attack, and we're already losing because um, we're being convinced to stay out of the war. And so a lot of the the, the chapter really deals with the, the details. I mean, I think the key figure here is a journalist named Edmund Taylor, um, a really fascinating individual. He was uh, working for the Chicago Tribune as uh, a correspondent in Paris, and he he witnesses firsthand the uh, Nazi invasion of Paris, and he so he flees. He manages to get out of the country, and he sort of very quickly he rushes to the publication of a sort of dramatized version of his own and his wife's um, uh, journals and diaries at the time, and this book is published under the the title The Strategy of Terror. Uh, And it purports to reveal the secrets of Germany's psychological war uh, in Europe. Now, when you read this book, it's very light on specifics, actually. You keep kind of waiting for um, the black box to get opened up, and uh, it doesn't really happen. But I mean, it does talk about the sort of terrifying nature of the Blitzkrieg and what it's like to, um, you know, have an army approaching. But there's something that's really interesting as well about this claim that he keeps making, which is that. You know the European countries didn't; they weren't defeated militarily. They were they were beaten psychologically. It was their psychological revol- revol- uh, resolve that failed them. Um, so this makes again. So this doesn't aggrandize Germany's military power, right? So it makes them seem like a sort of a a, a defeatable enemy. Um, but anyway, so so Taylor Taylor uh, he sort of gets hooked up with this network that um, the two Williams uh, are are putting together, um, and. Gets sort of incredible access. He has this huge spread in the New York Times. He has a huge spread in Fortune magazine, um, which was which was being run at the time by um, Charles Douglas Jackson, one of these other sort of intriguing figures, um, in the book who who later becomes the um, the sort of head of U.S. psychological war. In fact, Allied psychological war under Eisenhower um, in in. Um, in the the actual theaters of war and then he becomes eisenhower's um advisor president eisenhower's advisor on psychological war so he's one of these again um intriguing figures um but taylor really starts to and when you know when i make this claim that psychological war is a kind of social science fiction um we get some of these really um i i guess sort of pulpy uh, stories that come out of taylor like he'll, he'll say things like psychological war um you know germany's perfected it it is scientific knowledge this is a direct scientific knowledge of the inner forces which determine opinion and control nerves and so it's you know it's this again there's this idea that you know as you're sort of saying in in the 1950s there's this enthusiasm for for sort of futuristic super science but there's also this sort of dialectical of enlightenment thing happening right there's this fear that um you, well, first of all, there's this very mechanical view of human nature and thinking, but there's also a fear that that knowledge of that nature can be um, mm-hmm. bent against us and, and manipulated, and and that it will lend itself to this kind of frictionless manipulation. Um, and I mean, some of the I mean, he's he's really um, like, he, despite also sort of talking about psychological war as this sort of hyper-futuristic, hyper-advanced super-scientist. He also says things like, you know, watching Germany's psychological war was a like some sort of magical war of witch doctors uh, in primitive savages willing each other to destruction. So there's this interesting and contradictory sort of civilizational discourses that happen um, around psychological war where Germany seems to be both hyper-advanced but also kind of um, quote-unquote savage at the same time. Um, But it's very... I mean, I think what you come away with is this idea that it's it's terrifying. To be a target of psychological war is uh, is very terrifying. And so... So I think what what Taylor's work does there's two, there's two big consequences of this, um, of of thinking about psychological war or if psychological war is a real thing, it has these two two major consequences. And the first is that it creates for the everyday American, for um, I mean, for the whole nation, for everyone certainly, for the whole population, but also for for specific individuals to know things about the war, to understand yourself, not as just a passive spectator of the war, but an active combatant, right? It's someone who, by virtue of how you comport yourself, the things you believe, the things that you that you know about or don't know about, um, how you feel about the war, um, the idea of psychological war encourages you to understand these things about yourself, not a separate from, but integral to the war. Um, and so the first advertisement, there's an advertisement for Taylor's book in the New York Times, which is, from what I can tell, the first instance of the, the term psychological war in the New York Times is in this advertisement for his mm. book. And the, and the the tagline for the, for the advertisement is, you are public opinion, therefore you are an enemy target. And so there's this really pointed use of the second person, right? And really this about hailing the individual um as a both a sort of subject a, and an object of of psychological war so that's the the first i think really important thing that that psychological warfare does is it sort of hails the individual right and it interpolates them into the war itself now the second thing it does is um and this is where the title of the chapter comes from it purports to sort of change the geography of war it it mm. creates this this idea of a, of a new geography of defense and that's a line from from nelson rockefeller um who who is involved in some some ancillary ways uh one of the things that taylor says again and again in his writing is that psychological warfare is not bound by time or space which is a really incredible claim right um and this has something to do with the invention of shortwave radio mm-hmm. which means that um you know european powers can now broadcast radio signals to the united states um mind you no one's listening to these the signal is bad you need specialist equipment to pick it up and as like lots of uh, opinion polls had shown at the time People didn't listen to it because they understood it to be propaganda, right? So no one's tuning into this stuff. But there's this idea that modern technology is going to be able to, you know, do this kind of time-space compression, annihilate distance, and 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 because of this, it it this is going to change the the geography of war. So, and and again, this is a very, um, I I think, um, clever critique of isolationism, right? Um, and it's because it's it's saying. Well, you know, because this this was the whole idea about isolationism is the U.S. doesn't have to worry about about these wars. We're protected by our two big oceans, and so this idea that that psychological war isn't bound by time and space. It says, well, no, you're not isolated. the, the side war is already happening, and you're part of it. Not only is isolationism um, not preferable, it's untenable. Uh, it's actually impossible. So, so again, these are, I think, the two big. Claims around the, you know, what I'm calling the birth of psychological war is the one that it changes people's relationship to war, and it makes them think about themselves as as part of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also purports to change the geography of war. It means that again, you're you're involved whether whether you like it or not. I'm not saying that these things are, are true. In fact, I'm very critical of these claims. But this is this is sort of the claims of, about psychological war that sort of Taylor sets up at at
0: its. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Right. And there's a lot of anxiety on fifth columnists and and so yes. forth. And you, you don't get into it, but this is the same time as uh, uh as internment and that, yes. uh, that anxiety about um the other in the in the United States and, and you know r- real life actions there. Um chapter the, inter- two, yeah, the yeah. eternal enemy. Yeah. 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 Internal yeah, absolutely. Uh chapter two is entitled uh truth territory terror. And gets us into uh, some PSYOP practices during the Second World War. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. And uh, how was psychological warfare used in conjunction with real warfare, like aerial bombardment? And there's there's an argument, you know, that um, psychological warfare is actually supposed to save lives when used in conjunction with mass violence.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of progression of this chapter from truth to territory to terror is, um, sort of m- my accounting of, you know, the, the progression of psychological warfare from this, what I just described as this, um, sort of terrifying specter coming from abroad to something that we, um, are going to practice. As I say, we, uh, the United States is going to, uh, practice itself, right. um, and there's there's some sort of, and, and there's some there's there's an irony here, right? Because they just set it up as this terrifying thing, and it's like, well, okay, now we're gonna start doing it ourselves. Um, and so this, of course, leads to you know there's there's tension here, right? And so there's some hand wringing about like, well, how are we how are we gonna do this um, responsibly or in a way that doesn't sound terrifying like we just described? And so one of the ways that this is done is um, psychological war is split up into um, there's this idea that there's white white propaganda or white psi war and black psywar, mm-hmm. uh, and so the um, when when the war st- when the United States um, gets involved in the war in 1942, um, Donovan's Office of the Coordinator of Information becomes the Office of Strategic Services that's formalized, much expanded, and they're responsible for the. Covert or or um, so-called black propaganda, but then there's another organization called the Office of War Information, or the OWI, that's responsible for the the overt, or so-called white propaganda, the things that are attributable um, to the United States, mm-hmm. and so this is where we start to see the idea that the United States can. Differentiate itself from the vulgarity of World War One propaganda or the terror of German psychological warfare through a so-called strategy of truth. So there's this idea, and this this sort of becomes a, a key phrase for U.S. psychological war all through the Cold War. Is this idea that the the truth can fight for us? The truth, the truth is our weapon. Um, and again, there there's this. Implicit claim here that, you know, in the right hands, psychological war can can be more than just deceptive. It can be productive, right? It can help build morale, for example. Um, and I don't, I haven't spoken about it much, but this is one of the, this idea of morale is sort of one of the the twin morale and psychological war. Are these sort of twin concepts that grow up um, uh, side by side, right? So, so war is able to attack morale. Morale is able to defend against psychological war. So they've got the strategy of truth. So does this mean that the United States will will never lie and always tell the truth? Um, Well, well, no, they have the USS for that. Um, But what it it really means is that um, the US is going to try to conduct its propaganda in a way that doesn't seem like overt propaganda, right? They're going to um, use... They're going to sort of adopt the tones of objective, neutral, more or less liberal political discourse to do things like highlight favorable news and downplay negative news. Um, they're going to try to influence the framing of issues, etc. And this isn't really all that revolutionary. I mean, this is also how Germany was conducting its, its propaganda, right? Um, because again, at the time, there was so much fear that any kind of propaganda that Smelled too much like propaganda was instantly going to turn people off, right? So, so, so there was very much an idea that that propaganda needed to appear, at least in in its tone, ob- objective and neutral. And so, so what happens when we get to the battlefield? Well, it doesn't go particularly well, because um, as I say, you need these kind of, um, I think, for influence to effectively work. You have to be integrated into trusted circuits of information circulation, right? Um, and that can happen in, in domestic contexts. I think it's a bit easier. sort of, It's a bit more harder to achieve abroad. Um, when you're trying to achieve it against people in a shooting war, that's uh, very difficult, right? And so, but but nevertheless, we see some of the first um, U.S. war campaigns in North Africa. Um, they're dropping leaflets. Um saying, you know, oh, you can uh, on on Vichy French troops and suggesting that they uh, that they surrender and that they'll be given safe conduct to do so. It doesn't work very well. And there's a whole contingent, in fact, of allied commanders who were really kind of fed up with it. They were the the steel over paper contingent, right? They were like, we want we <laughs> um, and you had people like, um, you know, Arthur Harris and the or bomber Harris of the the British Royal Air Force saying that, You know, the only thing these damn leaflets are doing is giving the armies of Europe uh, a supply of toilet paper. Now, once... Once the Allies do occupy territory, I, th- I think things things change a bit. We we do see the um, setting up of the circuits of um, U.S. commodity exports to Europe. So Hollywood uh, movies start screening in Italian theaters. Um, the OWI is setting up distribution rights for uh, American film distributors. So so there's there's definitely a big role that the private sector is playing as well. Um, and so there is this territorial aspect to it um us occupying forces are doing things like dictating editorial policies or providing licenses for newspapers to sort of re to, to sort of reestablish the circulation of news and information um in sort of occupied and liberated europe um which is sort of an interesting process but um the i mean i think the the, the real the thing that i really try to argue with this chapter is to show that um the the last part the terror part mm-hmm. is when we think about the the history of of psychological war in world war II as conducted by the united states that it is intimately connected to uh the practice of aerial bombing which is also a relatively new practice at the time i mean it's not not completely new but it's the second world war where the practice of aerial bombardment um comes into full force in a way that it never had before. And so these two things, aerial bombardment and psychological warfare, kind of grow up side by side. And I argue that they're really intimately connected. And this is where we start to see what I think we can think about as a sort of the the, the Yanis face of psychological war, these sort of two faces that it has. And so, and this, this is sort of, um, Connects to your question on on the idea that psychological war can save lives, mm-hmm. because there's this one face of psychological warfare that says, "Well, cy war is about winning hearts and minds. It's a strategy of truth. It's a way to make war more humane, less kinetic. It can replace the violence of war. It can it can replace killing. Um, and this is this kind of you know the the, the therapeutic." face or discourse of psychological war. And this is often the story that again gets told on the home front is that psychological war is good and it 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 shows our commitment to to waging war humanely. And then of course there's the other face, the more inward-facing um face of of psychological war that's very clearly about an attempt to refine the social power of violence uh, and especially air power so air power is something that i mean since the late 19th century and the scramble for africa european powers had um were committed to trying to translate into political power there's a whole doctrine of colonial air policing mm-hmm. that tries to use bombing as a lever over populations to for pacification and try to like can we use bombing to make people do what we want um And yeah, and I owed a lot here to uh, my supervisor, Derek Gregory, who's done a lot of work on the history of of aerial bombing here. And so it was really in that context that that I sort of understood how psychological war connected to that history. Um, Because bombing in the Second World War is not just seen as the strategy to kill and destroy, although it certainly is this, um, but it's also understood as a kind of communication. Bombing is understood as a kind of communication both to populations and to political leaders. And there's this idea that emerges that if you if you bomb heavily enough, if you um, destroy the quote-unquote morale of a population, if you sort of torture the body politic enough, then it will rise up and overthrow its leaders. Um, and this is a, a an idea that's actually Still very much alive today. Um, you, I, I'm not even sure if we... though
2: the the entire twentieth history of the twentieth century pulls the rug out from underneath that idea, I mean, it's,
1: it, the exact opposite happens time after time. I don't know how it's. I mean, has this ever happened? Has this ever happened in in reality? But it's one of these ideas that fails forward continuously. Um, but there's, I know, yeah. There's this optimism that I think, and again, it it goes back to this. I, you know, these like sort of modernization conceits, right, is that um, forms of social scientists can be leveraged to make bombing socially legible to its victims so that bombing doesn't appear as this kind of, quote-unquote, unexplained ultimatum. Um, so we see the integration of psychological war operations into bombing raids and campaigns, and there's this sort of cycle where um a leaflet bomb will be dropped and so it'll say um uh you know surrender surrender now we're, we're targeting this city um evacuate this city um uh, bombs are going to be dropped like uh surrender now and then the bombing will happen and then more leaflets will be dropped um that are say okay ready to surrender and so sometimes the the tone of these these leaflets was was quite Quite cruel and mocking. Um, so there's a sense in which psychological war was seen, and this is you know its other face as a way to refine the terror of of violence in, in war and and to make to make violence socially and politically productive. But of course, yeah, as you said, as you rightly said, we we know that this doesn't really work. We and and they knew it at the time. There's there, there's there's writing at the time. Um, that suggests the opposite, right? We we know what London's experience under the Blitz was. We know the galvanizing effect that Pearl Harbor Pearl Harbor had on American public opinion. Um, bombing tends only to increase the uh, the resolve and resentment of its victims, right? As, as you as you say, and this and again, this was known at the time. I mean, um, I, the last thing I'll say about about this chapter is we. Um, you know, I, I talk about psychological war being a social science fiction. I mean, they there was a anthropologist named Alexander Layton who was working with the Office of War Information. and he was um s- studying. Japanese morale. So they do things like really interesting things like like intercepting journals. They're doing um, interviews with prisoners. And he had formed a picture of Japanese morale, which suggested that um, morale was very low and that that Japan could potentially be um, convinced to surrender. But one of the things that was preventing them from doing so was the fear of reprisal, uh, the fear of what would happen to them if they did lose. And so he was saying to his he was trying to say to his commanders up the line, saying, listen, if we continue to bomb like this, we're confirming their worst fears, and that's going to make them less likely to surrender. And his his bosses got really mad at him. <laughs> they, they said, no, that's not what we want to hear. Um, what we want to hear is that Japanese morale is invincible, which was itself part of Japan's own propaganda to get Americans to believe that, <laughs> right? Uh, and that And that bombing is the only way to weaken... That invincible morale. Um, so, he, you know, he 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 concludes. He, he wrote a retrospective on his experience after the war, and and he says, I think this line it's quite incredible. He says that you know the military uses social science the same way that a drunk uses a lamppost, which is for support rather than illumination.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, so chapter three, uh, covert crusade we get into the cold war. Um, how does PSYOPs evolve in the American campaign or crusade against communism?
1: Yeah. So the, I mean, the the big thing that happens for psychological warfare is that in 1953, the United States information agency, uh, is created. Now this is the outgrowth. If the, um, you know, if, if the CIA grew out of what was the OSS, um, the United States Information Agency grows out of what was the Office of War information. Um, and there's an irony here, because um, the USIA was supposed to signal the the end of psychological war, the death of psychological war. Um, of course, not in practice. Uh, but uh, of course, the the term had taken on somewhat of a sinister connotation, right? It's sort of, and again, it sounds scary. It's one of those things where a, a pejorative meaning, you know, sort of chases the the thing, no matter what what sort of euphemism is used at the time. But they eventually settle on this term public diplomacy um, sort of l- later on. Um, but of course, the um, you know, it's like that Mark Twain joke. The, the rumors of psychological war's death uh, were greatly exaggerated. Um, and so... This is you know this is where um I started to do a lot of uh, archival work, and one of the interesting things about the u s i a is you couldn't really do a lot of research on it um because one of the, the the law that brought it into existence was the called the smith Munt Act, and one of one of the things that it stipulated was that the products produced by the USIA couldn't be circulated within the United States. Uh, mind you, that that did happen uh, a number of times, so it didn't it wasn't really, but it's it's often interpreted, though some disagree. Uh, it's often interpreted as a a domestic dissemination ban. So basically, the USIA can't. Do propaganda against the American public, L- like like but the as-
2: CIA, like the CIA is not supposed to operate in the United States. It's all extra interesting, yeah, yeah.
1: Os- ostensibly, yeah. So ost- <laughs> <laughs> and so, but as a result, you couldn't. Um, the, the the files of the USIA were were closed until the early two thousands, and so when I went to the National Archives in Maryland, um, I was I was able to 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 get into the USIA files because they they. Only recently been made available, so that was a, a, a real a real boon, and it's uh, I mean there's still a lot of files to go through there. I think that's a, a there's a lot of good research to be done on the USIA files uh, at at NARA, um, but yeah. So so it's, it's sort of funny, right? Because this is this is the moment when the USIA so cywar is supposed to to be gone, um, but in fact the USIA um, represents the Sort of massive expansion and crystallization of the United States psychological war capacity that had been established through its series of outposts um, during the second world war and and as you can see in in the archives, basically you know over the course of a decade, almost every country in the world there's there's a plan there's a country plan um, that says okay um what type of messages do we want in this country? what kind of messages do we want um for the domestic audience, there, what kind of messages do we want for for um, Americans about this country? And so, there's these country plans that sort of coincide with this broader turn towards regional and area studies that's that's emerging uh, at this time. And so, that's the sort of broader context of psychological war. But but the chapter, yeah, it, it focuses actually not on the USIA, but on this campaign that the that the CIA runs, which by their by their own accounting was what they call one of the 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 longest running and most successful of its of its covert operations in the campaign and that was of course to um secretly run Radio Free Europe um now Radio Free Europe is more of a, a kind of a household name but I think it's really easy to forget that during its first 15 years um it was again covertly run um by the cia um and it was sort of masquerading as this civil society organization that was led and funded by concerned citizens and grassroots funding so the the specific front group was called the national committee for a free europe and uh that committee ran a campaign called the crusade for freedom and the crusade for freedom um was a uh, was part fundraiser part advocacy um network that uh solicited funds for radio for europe which would then in turn broadcast um sort of pro-western pro-capitalist pro-liberalism messages um sometimes to europe but mostly to um the warsaw pact countries in in eastern europe um and yeah it's uh but my argument here is that um as much as this campaign was about um reaching the sort of communist countries in Europe. It was also about um, targeting Americans and sort of um, bringing Americans on board um, for the ideological Cold War. And so I'll, I'll just give sort of one example from the chapter, which I, I really love, which is this idea of the truth dollar. Yeah. So one of the things the crusade did was, um, because there was this idea that Radio Free Europe was completely li- like uh, supported by Americans who were... Um, who, who wanted to uh, sort of themselves become psychological warriors, right? It was this idea that by funding Radio Free Europe, by by sending in a truth dollar, that you could fund the psychological war that that was being waged uh, against communism. And again, it, it it's that theme of um, transforming the sort of ordinary c- civilian from a passive spectator to an active participant in in war right um and i think there's something again kind of genius about it because the, the the symbolism of the dollar um as as an investment i mean it's it's you know it's a very low amount of money so but it's but the, the symbolic investment the sort of the spiritual investment of the individual in the you know the so-called fight against communism, I think, is really smart because it does this thing to conflate market exchange with political freedom, mm-hmm. and it, mm-hmm. it, it it positions the U.S. dollar as the sort of unit of political agency, right? Quite, um, yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting, and they, but the sort of punchline here is that. For every dollar that the Crusade for Freedom raised, every, for every Truth dollar they successfully solicited, they actually lost money. I can't remember, but something like it cost them a dollar fifty to 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 raise the dollar because of the uh, administrative costs and and things like that. So they were, they were losing money, but of course Radio Free Europe was fully fully funded. Um, but 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 also, as as you just noted, there's that effect of enrolling the average American
2: into being a Cold Warrior into being. And anti-communist crusader so actually losing money on that it's not losing money that's that's investment you're getting a return on investment by making the average american a part of this campaign right
1: absolutely and and i mean i think that that idea of like invest like yeah d- these sort of symbolic gestures that in- invest the individual is really interesting i mean the, the other the other sort of example from this chapter is this the idea of the uh it was called the freedom bell they made a sort of a copy of the liberty bell and toured it around the the the, the united states and i'll i can't go all the way down the rabbit hole in this because there's but it's uh as part of this tour they um encouraged people to sign what was called a freedom scroll and the freedom scroll was saying like i i recommit myself to the principles of freedom or something like that right and it has this very sort of catechistic confessional kind of it's about this and you know and I I draw a lot on Foucault here because it's like all of these sort of first person statements about yourself it's these you you're encouraged to produce a discourse about yourself and there's the idea that by by writing it down by saying it out loud you again you invest yourself in the statements that you make about yourself um, and and I mean, so the idea was that once they had finished this tour, they would take this massive stack of scrolls, and they were quite big, and sort of inter them in the base of the bell's housing. I, I don't kind of know what the architecture looked like. And then all of that was sent to West Berlin in City Hall, where the bell is still still there. I don't know if those oh, scrolls still, are oh, wow, still there. Oh, wow, it's still there, huh? So so yeah, uh, West yeah Berlin listeners, um, if we can get eyes on those scrolls, I'd I'd be really fascinated to know if they're still there. But the idea was, I mean, it's you know, I, I like this idea of the the accumulated weight of this stack of political avowals and and its sort of symbolic representation of the ordinary individual not just being defensive anymore, right? Not just not not just trying to preserve their own morale against the the onslaught of enemy psychological war, but themselves becoming active participants. It's uh, I think it's quite interesting.
2: Absolutely. With chapter four, uh, you enter a world that that I know, uh, Southeast Asia. Um, tell us about Psy War in Vietnam, and this chapter places the American war in Vietnam and the larger context of psychological warfare as a, as
1: a branch of counterinsurgency. Correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, and again, yeah, this this was a chapter where I really relied a lot on um, archival work um, from the from the National Archives, um, and again on those USIA um, r- records. Um, and so, yeah, w- one of the things I try to set this chapter up by situating cy war in Vietnam within the broader shift. Um, within the United States Information Agency towards counterinsurgency that really started um, in the early 1960s with the Kennedy administration. And one of the things that Kennedy does is he appoints uh, as the director of the USIA, uh, Edward R. Murrow, which I think is sort of an irony, given that Murrow is sort of remembered as this like you know, he he's the guy who fights McCarthy. Uh, he's the um, sort of champion of of liberal democracy over over the Red Scare, and he sort of finishes his career as the United States. Sort of anti-communist crusader I, at, at, I at the U.S. I was so surprised, uh, so surprised to read that. <laughs> so, so so was I, and it's not really discussed that much. So when I when I saw this in the no. archives, I was like, I was like, what Murrow? Um, and but he 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 quickly falls ill, so he he has the position for a very short tenure, um, which is why it maybe doesn't get um, talked about that much. But one of the things that I was able to find was Murrow's um notes uh and records relating to his participation in um uh, this group called the the special group on counterinsurgency. This is the time when there's all these special group interagency special groups being formed in um in in the government and this one was set up by uh, Bobby Kennedy, who's the Attorney General uh, at the time and it involves all sort of representatives from all the major um sort of military and security agencies and and sort of Murrow sort of briefs the the special group on, the, the USIA's sort of counterinsurgency turn. Um, and he says, you know, all of those things that we used to talk about at the USIA, this idea about advertising the US or making friends or the strategy of truth, that's not what we're doing now. So what the USIA is going to be doing is we're we're out here to support friendly governments. And one of the examples he gives is the uh, Cyril Adula regime in, in the Congo. He says, we're setting up the infrastructure to support that government um, with communication, with with plant, with expertise, um, with materials, um, to to help um create a communication environment that can produce internal security that can hedge against um you know uh, communist revolutions and things like that and so th- this is the wider context of of the USA's counterinsurgency turn and its interest in in so-called counterinsurgency countries of which Vietnam is one um and this is uh, there's a heavy interest in in Latin America and in Southeast Asia so 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 this is the context and so, what does U.S. Cywar do? Well, they're um, trying to support uh, at first, well, the the DM government, and then um, its many successors. And this is about providing, again, logistical support, infrastructure for communication. Um, it's also about producing uh, content, so magazines, radio programs, um, news stories, entertainment, operas, th- things things like that. Um, and so there's this hope that producing content and, and setting up the um, infrastructure the conditions to produce information circulation in Vietnam uh, will create this sort of lever of power. And and I use like Foucault's idea of governmentality or or biopolitics to think about um, this type of power created by circulation, um, encouraging conditions for life and, and, and the growth of life. Um, and, and so this is where that connection again to modernization theory comes in, right? There's this hope that in setting up the conditions for modern communication, as they see it anyway, um, that they can create, um, so-called modern individuals and that these modern individuals will be, um, Malleable in a way, uh, as they as they become modern subjects and and take leave of uh, sort of traditional life, and so again we see here pop up, you know, one of those first books on psychological wars written by Daniel Lerner, and Daniel Lerner becomes one of these modernization theorists out of uh, the Center for International Studies at MIT. He writes a book called "The Passing of Traditional Society" that's very much about um, how. He believes that modern communication technologies can sort of unlock the potential of individuals for for modern existence or, or modern experiences of the world, and that this can be used um, again to create to create a, a new type of person. And this sort of, I, I mean, I, I guess hubris we see um, very much within the types of war organizations that are established uh, in Vietnam. So the most influential one being uh the joint united states public affairs office that's just pow and that's established in 1965 um now under the johnson presidency and its first director is this guy barry zorthian who's sort of a legend in u.s public diplomacy and i mean he 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 makes some pretty incredible statements that i think reflect this kind of belief in their ability to um Enact modernization not only on 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 the country but sort of its people at, at a sort of spiritual level. He'll say things like, and this is a direct quote: "We can rebuild these people. We can turn them into an asset for their country, right? We can." So there's this idea that people can sort of be de, de and reconstructed, right? And that 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 psychological de- radicalized. Right? Well, yeah. And and yeah, they can be de radicalized or they can be pacified. And so he'll say things like we can we can be more more effective than the military. We can remove combatants from the battlefield. Um of, of course, um, well, <laughs> does this happen? Well, that's another question. Um but again, it, it ties into the to the to the broader strategy that we see um in, in the war as well, or this idea of, you know that they can create not only a, a modern country, but modern individual. They can create uh, this idea of new life, right? Because that's what the the whole theme around the, the strategic Hamlet program, they're often called new life Hamlets as these sort of microcosms where an, a new way of living could be created. And um, psychological was is a big part of that, that vision for creating a modern uh, experience. Um, again, I, I do think that this is... Uh, quite hubristic right and some of the but but nonetheless some of the efforts that were undertaken are quite um remarkable there was an effort to construct a national television network uh, so a single unified tv network that would cover the entire country um and so the the, uh, i think the army brings in um NBC's international division. And so they contract. So again, we see lots of private private sector actors um, sort of coming in. And so the the the, the goal is to produce a, a national television audience um, over which they can have influence and through which they can help shape the contours of uh a, a, an emergent nationalism that will be that will be friendly, right? Um <clears throat> and there's this there's this sort of belief that Um, through exposure to to these sort of technological marvels or the marvels of modern communication that, again, people will um, sort of be be dazzled by the experience and it will make them want to integrate themselves into, um, quote unquote, modern modern life, uh, which... D- d- dare I yeah. dare I venture this with a, a Canadian yeah. with a background
2: in communications, but maybe the medium <laughs> is the message, right? It's the Marshall McLuhan cliche. I mean, communicating yeah. via television, putting televisions what are there, I think some of them are like run by generators in villages where people could gather together and and, and watch yeah. this modern Marvel.
1: I mean you're absolutely you're absolutely right. And that that was that was the dream. And I mean yeah. and it's really a folly. i mean, in in a in a, in a country where in a war where this sort of ordinary peasant, the quote unquote ordinary peasant is is understood as the the war center of gravity to construct a national television network um in an agrarian country where, not a lot of places have electricity, let alone television. So, so yeah, they would they put that these um, what are called mo- mobile information teams. So, uh, you get a jeep with a generator and a TV set, and they would go set up a, a television station, or sorry, a, a television sort of viewing party in a village. And it was hoped that that vision of uh, you know televisual modernity would act as this sort of totem. Uh, to 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 sort of convert people um, to to the cause, or or at least to pacify. Um, so so you this know, is the that...
2: the French the French did a similar thing a couple of generations before, with Everything. um with uh film, and uh, setting up movie mm. projectors and 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 showing films in in various villages and and a, a lot a lot of uh, public health films which which I looked at my work on oh. history of disease. But there's a lot of talk about simply setting up this projector in this village in central Vietnam is going to, well, win hearts and minds. And and the technology is going to be so seductive that, of course, they're going to get enrolled in the French civilizing mission.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. And and so this is, I mean, this sort of goes back to the, this like Yanis face of, of psychological war, right? This is very much the the one face that sort of sees psychological war as a potential to be productive, to be humane um you know and to, to actually pr- produce that this this sort of vision of new life that they um are wanting to build but of course this is contradicted by the other face of psychological war, right um which is remains sort of deeply integrated and wedded to strategies of aerial bombardment which of course are strategies of terror. Right. And so what we, we see that it's a very similar story to the one I described, um, in the second world war is that there's an integration of sort of psychological war operations with bombing campaigns. And indeed, there's an understanding among commanders that bombing itself is a form of communication. Um, in, in James Gibson's book, techno war in Vietnam, he makes this argument very convincingly that, um, bombing was seen as a form of communication and and I mean the types of like leaflets that you, that you discover, I mean, it's again, there was very much an effort to advertise the industrial capacity of the United States and its ability to um, sort of produce this scale of killing and, and the scale of destruction. Um, and also to advertise the the willingness to to continue to use it. So so this is again th- this kind of speaks to these two faces of psychological war and how they're kind of constantly in tension with with one another. There's these sort of biopolitical ambitions, right? This idea that we can cyborg so can be productive and create life that always is rubbing up against the. I guess more necropolitical reality of uh, the killing uh, that is sort of always inescapable in war, and, warm. Um, and I, I guess one of the you know, this, I mean, I think one of the really uh, a good example of this was that you know you would see these leafleting campaigns that would, I guess, this sort of sums up the the contradiction uh, that would sort of be advertising. The United States' ability to to provide medical aid. They said if you're if you're injured, we like we can guarantee you um, medical care uh, against injuries. And it's like, well, <laughs> where did those injuries come from in the first place, <laughs> right? I mean, these are so so these are these are injuries pursuant to to so, sort of you know the the massive bombardment that that occurred um, in Vietnam. So this is again the the, the contradictions, um, and I, I think that's really what I tried to show it. The book is that this idea of psychological war isn't as as neat as it might seem. It's in fact full of these contradictions, and and we should be careful not to take at face value the claims that psychological war tends to make about itself. Yeah,
2: absolutely. So, what were what were some of the more surprising or amusing things you encountered in your research? I mean, my favorite sort of history shenanigans was a as you talked about around the uh, radio free Europe and the and the you know the the secret funding and and convincing the American public that it was civil society um yeah, I, I found that so fascinating. What were some of the others that popped out at you?
1: well, i mean, i guess for for surprising um i I really didn't expect the project to be as historiogra- historiographical uh, as it as it was yeah. um i I really didn't expect to tell a different story about the historical origins of psychological war than than are often told. So so that was sort of surprising for me. Um yeah, amusing. It's I, I think there there's there's something about sometimes I dread I dread, you know, some people ask, well, what do you research? And I'll say, well, psychological war. And and someone will inevitably say to me, ah oh, yes, but have you read Sun Tzu's The Art of War? <laughs> uh, and there's <laughs> which which reflects there's 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 this idea I think that you know there, there are these sort of um, like truths that these 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 like bromides that you can um, if you can learn there's this this sort of secret secret wisdom. Of, of warfare that provides some kind of transcendental access to power and I think there's a certain type of guy out there that really loves that right and so sometimes it's like um you get involved in those conversations like oh no um yeah. a, but a lot of a
2: lot of them live near me in Sil- and work in Silicon <laughs> Valley um,
1: yeah I, I bet that's right and so bro, but it bro, speaks bro, bro,
2: bromide would be the word I mean, bro <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: that's really good uh, but so there, I mean, there's there's this misconception I think about about psychological war um, from both its proponents and detractors. I think right, and it's they both they both strangely agree on something, which is the 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 idea that that psychological war uh, represents a coherent body of knowledge that can be translated into social and political power. So there's a belief in the efficacy of psychological warfare by its proponents mm-hmm. as an endorsement of psychological war. But then there's also a belief in its efficacy by its detractors as, as a condemnation. I say, Oh, we got to, we got to, we got to stop them from doing this stuff. Right. And so I think both of those beliefs in, in in their own way are kind of symmetrical and they, they may prevent us from seeing that psychological warfare is maybe not all of the things that it claims to be. Um, and so I think that's one of the surprising things that that I found. And so that's one of the things that I tried to do with with the book is to sort of challenge the idea of what psychological war is on a more fundamental level.
2: Yeah. Um, any thoughts on the future of psychological warfare? I mean, in the conclusion, you you reference uh Russian min- misinformation campaigns and 2016 and, and Brexit yeah. and so forth. Um
1: any thoughts on where we're at or or <laughs> what the what the future is? I mean I don't I don't love to speculate, but I mean if I I, I do I mean I, I think that what we'll likely see when we when we hear about psychological war in, in sort of popular political discussions is that it will become more and more conflated with um legitimate forms of domestic political dissent and and protest and and, and dissidents um and we saw this in i in fact i have an article out about this that's also in open access um we we saw this a lot in 2020 Um, with the Black Lives Matter movement, especially with the George Floyd protests, there was a sizable contingent uh, of uh, voices in the American press that were trying to claim that Russian psychological warfare had had, quote-unquote tricked Americans and Black Americans into protesting George Floyd's murder. And I think that's... um, incredibly concerning and i think it's i think it's cynical and and mm-hmm. uh, but also very dangerous right i mean i think there's like <laughs> i mean the idea that outrage against like you know th- the murder of a man caught on film is not a legitimate form of political grievance but something that is fomented by uh, a foreign power is I mean, there's something extremely exculpatory about that, right? It's like, oh, the problem can't be with our with our society. It's it's about outside agitators or it's outside influence. And so, I I, I think we're likely to see those kind of that that kind of rhetoric continue to circle ar- around the idea of psychological war and and what it's capable of doing. Right, and and obviously the
2: 2016 presidential campaign in the United States comes to mind, and. Yeah, if you you blame it on the Russians, then you you don't have to address uh, Clinton not going to Michigan <laughs> or 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 maybe maybe that Trump had a message that a number of Americans wanted to hear. Um, you can just it's you, you, you again sculptory. You you don't take yeah. responsibility for for our own shortcomings, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've been really generous with your time, and I've I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I, but I've got two questions before I let you go. These are the the standard uh, new books, debriefing questions. Um, Mm -hmm. First, uh, can you suggest two books for our audience?
1: Yeah. I mean, so I guess I'll say if you are interested more in, in psychological war, uh, there's a really great book by Christopher Simpson called the science of coercion. That is a very um, sort of tightly focused study of, um, early communication studies in the 1950s especially around the uh, the journal public opinion quarterly mm-hmm. where a lot of that these early ideas uh, about psychological war and the power of propaganda get kind of worked out and he does a really excellent de- deconstruction of that of that literature and so i think that's the sort of if further reading in psychological war um and i guess the other book i mean i've been revisiting um Derek Gregory's book The Colonial Present. I mean I think for this is sort of topical I guess but as um we're seeing more I mean violence in the Middle East and 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 perhaps even further regional ex- escalation if there's especially younger listeners out there who are looking for some contextualization of politics in the Middle East I think I think Gregory's uh The, the Colonial Present is um r- r- a really great place to start. It's very accessible and and very well written.
2: Absolutely. Um, And finally, uh, what are you, what are you working on now and what can we hope to see from you next?
1: Yeah. I mean, hopefully I've been working on uh, an article about the, the idea of active measures, uh, which is so, so I give it sort of a similar treatment to psychological war, which is to say, I'm trying to find out how the idea of active measures entered the, Sort of U.S. political discourse because this is, you know, as you said, around the 2016. This is this is a term that returned to political discourse, uh, or, or sort of around the RussiaGate scandal, um, and so sort of active measures is sort of a shorthand for um, well, erstwhile Soviet um, covert operations in in other countries, so I- including things like psychological war. So I sort of set about trying to find out when. When and where that that word entered American um, the American lexicon, and it turns out it it emerged in in the 1980s and sort of the first term of the the Reagan presidency, the so-called second Cold War in the post detente era, um, and it was very much uh, a concerted response by the Reagan administration to paint the anti-war movement the us anti-war movement especially the the anti-nuclear war uh the anti-proliferation uh or the the nuclear freeze movement as something that was infiltrated by and fomented by uh soviet intelligence and so i kind of trace and this is another concept that just doesn't really exist in um in, in American political discourse before the 1980s. And it's sort of a reconstruction of how that term uh, came to exist. And so that should be out soon. And then the other thing I'm working on is uh, sort of a, a critique of this idea of hybrid warfare, because this is another term we've been seeing a lot of in the in the past decade or so. Um and the sort of main claim that the idea of hybrid war tends to make is that this division between war and peace is, is blurring or it's, it's, it's breaking down. Um, and that's the hybrid part. And so I think one of the interesting things that this does is suggest or implies that there's a bygone time in which the line between war and peace was well-established and, um, sort of, uh, well-observed. And I mean, that's just not true. And so, I, so my so the argument that I'm moving towards there is this idea that h- hybrid warfare as an idea is based m- more in nostalgia and rea- than in reality. And so I try to tr- trace some of those uh, civil military. So that's sort of a, a conceptual piece for me in the way I don't usually write. But yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm working on. Fascinating. I look I look forward to seeing those. So um,
2: Jeffrey White, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thanks, Mike. It's been a, a real pleasure. Yeah, This has been a conversation with Jeffrey White of Lancaster University about the birth of psychological war, propaganda, espionage, and military violence from World War II to the Vietnam War Out uh, with Oxford University Press in 2023. and It's available via open access. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University. This has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.